Hey, happy Father's Day, everybody, all you fathers out there. It's a fun day for us. I figured that we'd talk about magic tricks this morning, because I know that's one thing is sometimes dads really enjoy the old where'd your nose go and stuff. And there are a lot of magic words that we use in our culture and in our society, and, and all of these magic words are supposed to have this tremendous power to produce phenomenal effects in our lives. One of those magic words that we use a lot is please. We teach our children, this is a magic word and it has this phenomenal effect of, of getting what you desire. For example, daddy, may I have some juice? What's the magic word? Please, and poof, there's juice. Another one is, have you lost weight? Magic word, is supposed to endear people to our favor. Alternatively, get you out of trouble with your spouse. Honey, have you lost weight? Poof, magic. We use a lot of magic words, but probably the most well-known magic words are words that you have probably used dozens of times in your life without ever realizing what they mean or where they come from. It's a magic word that we use with every magic trick. You wanna venture a guess what it is? Abracadabra, that goobly gop that's supposed to bring about some sort of wondrous effect, right? There's actually an interesting story behind abracadabra. These are very ancient words. Uh, we first find them written down somewhere in the second century AD, that's the year 100 to 199. Um, and it was written down by a physician who treated the Emperor Caracalla. And these words were supposed to be inscribed on an amulet worn around your neck and it's supposed to ward off a condition that we know today to be malaria. Uh, those words, they continued through history, through a group of people called the Gnostics into subsequent centuries. And they would take these words, abracadabra, and they would write them on stones. And these stones then were supposed to endear the, the scribe to these spirits that would ward off disease. Again, magical, wondrous effects because of these words. Even as late as 1665, just a few hundred years ago in London, England, people would scratch abracadabra into the doorposts of their homes as a way of fending off the plague and protecting their families. Now, as you might venture to guess, none of that worked. People still got malaria, people still got disease, people still got the plague. There's a lot of magic words that really don't do anything at all. They don't have power, they don't have a wondrous effect for our lives, but this morning, I wanna teach you the one exception to this rule. We are gonna learn an incredible, incredible magic word. Didn't know you're gonna learn sorcery at church today, did you? But we're continuing this series this week called Staycation. It's this idea, we all have very busy lives, lives that are very full, lives that move at a radical pace at times, a pace that we struggle to keep up with and we feel tired. And in these seasons, what we want more than anything is to rest or maybe to just get away from everything on a vacation. But the reality is we can't always get away every time life gets hectic and crazy. We need to build into the regular rhythms and routines of our lives the ability to find rest right where we are, a staycation, if you will. And this morning, I wanna teach you the powerful, magical words that will unlock the power of staycation in your life. Are you ready to receive this wonderful gift this morning? Okay, it's quite a lot, and it's gonna take a lot on your body channeling this much raw spiritual energy, so I want you to assume the proper posture with both feet planted on the floor, okay? Now I want you to raise your hands to the sky. Some of you aren't doing it, you're really gonna regret that, you're gonna get all kinds of nauseous from this. Now look up into the air, and I'm gonna teach you the ancient incantation. Here we go, are you ready? No! That's, that's it. 
Yeah, that's the magic word that is gonna change your life and unlock so much potential power to find rest. Because no is a very powerful word, especially, especially for those who are weary and who need rest. Now, sometimes we realize this, but we hesitate to use that word in our lives because maybe we feel bad or we feel guilty saying no, particularly to good things in our lives. Sometimes we feel like we're being selfish if we say no. And we're gonna address some of those hesitancies in a little bit, but I wanna first, I wanna take some time just to see how appropriate and how necessary the word no is in our lives, even when it comes to really good things. So I wanna invite you to turn with me to the book of John this morning. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 12 is where we're gonna be. There's a story out of Jesus's life that really illustrates the power of no. Now, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, don't sweat it. We always put the passages on the screens to the side, or alternatively, you can download the FCC Monmouth app on your mobile device, and in the bottom right-hand corner, there's like a little pulpit-looking thing. It says Sunday. Just click that, and you'll find sermon notes available with this passage already pulled up, ready to engage with. So this is an event from the life of Jesus. In John chapter 12, it goes like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here's the scene. We're six days from Passover, meaning that this is about a week or so before the event where Jesus' life will end. In a few days, he's gonna go to the city of Jerusalem. He's gonna be arrested. He's gonna be executed on the cross. This is a really significant time. But before we get to that, he's taken some time in this little suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany to hang out with some close friends, two sisters named Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus that seem to be very good friends of Jesus. So they're having dinner. Things seem to be going well. Jesus is with his disciples. How many of them? We don't know. Probably just the 12 because this is one house. And so they're having dinner and Mary who, by the way, is a really special gal and really seems to get it more so than even some of Jesus' regular disciples. But Mary has this compulsion, maybe, to do something just loving for Jesus. And maybe she's not entirely sure what to do exactly, but she just feels the need to do something. And so she grabs this bottle of perfume this stuff called nard, which you probably would not name a perfume that today. It doesn't sound very lavish, nard, but that's what it was. And it smelled great. And she goes and she pours it on Jesus's feet. And not just like a little bit of it, but all of it. Like this, this nard, it actually was really expensive stuff. It would have been in a hermetically sealed bottle that you had to break the top of. It would have been alabaster probably. You had to break the top of it off and therefore you had to use all of it. And she just pours it on Jesus's feet. But it goes a little further. She lets her hair down, which in this particular culture for a woman to do in the presence of men that she was not married to would have been maybe a little scandalous. But she's just kind of throwing caution and inhibition to the wind and she goes to start to dry Jesus's feet with her hair. And this may seem like a really odd thing to us today, but in this context and in this culture, this is a really sweet moment. It's just this really tender thing where somebody who just loves Jesus and wants to demonstrate just this act of kindness and devotion to him just does something very special. Not everybody saw it that way though. Let's keep reading. In verse four it says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Mary does this really nice thing, and then Judas, that Judas, who's gonna sell out Jesus in a little bit, he speaks up. He says, what are you doing? Do you know how much that cost? Do you know how many mouths we could have fed with that money? We could have helped the poor with that. And we read this little parenthetical note that Judas was a bit of a thief and that his motives and objections weren't really pure. All the same, he kind of has a point. And in fact, if we were to read this same story in the book of Matthew, we wouldn't read anything about Judas. Instead, what we would read is the disciples objected, meaning all of them. So even though Judas is singled out here in John's telling of the story, all of them are kind of nodding in agreement like, yeah, he, he kind of has a point, Jesus. I mean, this is what we do. This is what God told us to do multiple times in his word is to take care of the poor, to feed the hungry, to watch out for the widow and the orphan. And we could have done a lot of good with that money. Here's how Jesus responds. This is where it starts getting significant to our point. In verse seven, he says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So here is this really significant, important, good thing, take care of the poor, that is presented before Jesus, and essentially he says, no. He says, literally, leave her alone, but the no is implicit there. He's disagreeing with Judas's point. No, you're always going to have the poor with you. You're not always going to have me. So Jesus is saying no to a really, really good thing. And if Jesus can do that, you have permission to use the word no in your lives as well, even when it comes to really, really good things. Now, obviously, the sermon is not over yet. We have a lot more to talk about because there's a caveat here. When we look at Jesus' interactions with the disciples, He's not just saying no to one thing. He's actually saying yes to several other things at the same time. And that's what we really need to pay attention to. That's kind of the forgotten magical part of the word no that we sometimes don't realize. Saying no is not really about saying no. It's about saying yes to something else. And vice versa, saying yes is about saying no to something else. That's a message for another time. Sometimes the only way that you can say yes to one thing is to say no to something else. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. This is from my own life, not that I have this figured out, but I am somebody who struggles to say no at times, and this is just a discipline that I've had to, and my wife has made me really cultivate in our house. My day off is Friday. Uh, I have a very flexible, fluid schedule, you know, Monday through Thursday in the office, the evenings, if people need appointments, they're available. Saturday, right now we have a Bible study on Saturday morning that takes us up to about noon in the afternoons, available for schedule. Sunday, obviously I'm a little busy right now, but Sunday afternoon, it's available for schedule. Very fluid. But Friday is not available. Friday is a sacred day that is dedicated to my family. I try as hard as I can not to schedule anything on Friday. Now, that doesn't mean other things don't try to schedule themselves onto Friday. Sometimes well-intended, you know, just people that weren't aware in the church that wanna say, hey, can we meet on Friday? 
or sometimes people in the community want to meet on Friday, or sometimes the organizations that I'm a part of in town, they want to meet on Fridays, or sometimes there are events that I'm asked to volunteer at that happen on Fridays. There's a lot of things that happen on Fridays, and they're all good. And if it were any other day of the week, my answer would probably be yes. But on Friday, the answer has to be no. Not because they're not good, not because they're not worthwhile, not because I'm selfish and lazy, but because saying no to those things is the only way I can say yes to my family and the people that I care about. Sometimes the only way we can say yes to really, really important things is to say no even to really good things. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers, not quite as smart as Jesus, but still a pretty sharp guy. He puts it like this. He says, focusing is about saying no. In other words, if you really want to focus on something, if you really want to prioritize something and make it important, you have to learn to say no to everything else. So what is Jesus prioritizing in this, in this, this picture, this passage here? Because he just said no to helping the poor. That's a really big no. So there must be some pretty significant yeses that he has in mind. And when we start to reflect on what's going on in this situation and in this context, we start to get an idea of what his priorities are. And his priorities should probably be our priorities as well as his people. I'm realizing now that I put a granola bar in my pocket just in case and I forgot to take it out. Ignore that. So what is Jesus prioritizing? As we look at this passage, we see Jesus seems to be prioritizing something a little more long-term than his disciples are. They're very focused on the poor, and the poor are here now, and they need help now, but Jesus seems to have something else on his mind that's just like a little further away. He's prioritizing the long term. And no has the power to work that same magic in our lives as well. It allows us to prioritize significant long-term things over short-term goods. So what is this long-term thing in Jesus' life? Well, it's Jerusalem. We read it at the beginning of the story, six days before the Passover. This is where Jesus is going to be crucified. This is where he is going to be the savior of mankind. This is where your sins and my sins and all our sins get washed away and, and we're rescued from death and from sin and, and we're given this life that God always intended for people to have. This is a huge, momentous thing that Jesus has brewing and nothing no matter how good it is, can get in the way of this plan. This thing that is sitting in the distance, that is his priority. And we even kind of see that in his words. As, as Mary anoints his feet and these disciples start to chastise her, he says, no, this was intended to be saved for the day of my burial, which sounds really weird because Jesus is sitting at dinner with some friends. What's he talking about? When Jesus sees this anointing on his feet, in his mind, this is kind of a prefiguring of what's gonna happen when he's buried, when Joseph of Arimathea and, and other people anoint his, his corpse and put him in a tomb. You see, his mind is already focused on what's coming. He has this laser-like vision on Jerusalem, on the cross, on the events that are about to unfold, and everything that happens is filtered through that lens because this is what matters. This is his yes and everything else even really good things have to be no. Now the same thing is true in our lives. There are some really, really important long-term goals and plans that God has set on your heart. And they are not of the same caliber as saving mankind from their sins, right? 
but they're still pretty important and they're still worth your yes. Sometimes, and I don't know what your life is, we're in different phases of life, so maybe you have different goals and different plans, but for a lot of us, it's probably not hard to imagine that, that raising godly children is part of that burden that God has put on your heart. We wanna see our kids grow in faith and grow in character to become as Christ-like and godly as they can. That's a God-honoring plan. Or maybe for you, it's your, your marriage. You wanna see your marriage become this Ephesians kind of marriage where you represent or you model the love that Christ has for the church and, and your relationship together becomes this testimony of the gospel for the world to see. That's the beauty and the potential of marriage and you want that. That's a God-honoring long-term plan. Or maybe for you, you're very, uh, you're very concerned, not concerned, you're very interested in developing your potential because you believe what, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that everything we do should be done unto the, as if unto the Lord and that in your job, in your career, in your hobbies, and how you keep your home, and in your daily activities, you want that to be developed to its fullest potential and you wanna succeed in that as an act of worship. That's a God-honoring thing that God's put on your heart. My hope as your pastor is that somewhere in your long-term plans, you wanna see your faith develop and grow and you wanna see your relationship with your creator improve and you wanna take those next steps forward. All of these God-honoring long-term plans that he's placed on your heart for good reason and all of them deserve your yes. Now, here's the challenge. Standing between where you are today and that finish line of reaching your goal, that mission, is a lot of distance. For some of us, there's a little bit more. For some of us, there's a little bit le less. But, but for all of us, there's a race that we are running. And the other challenge is that spread all across this race in our lane are all these really good things asking for your yes, asking for your time and your energy and your focus, those three things that you need if you're gonna reach that long-term goal. And a lot of these good things are things that you will want to do, want to say yes to. Maybe your coworker at work needs a little extra help catching up or they're having a hard time with this project and they say, would you mind hanging around a little bit and helping me out with this? Or maybe you have a family member that says, I'm, I'm moving this weekend, could you, could you lend me your weekend? Could you lend me your, your back and your body and, and we're gonna move some stuff and we're gonna get my, my son, my cousin, my uncle, whoever moved into this new place. Or, or maybe your kids, they, they want a new phone or they want some new shoes and it's gonna require you to work a little overtime. Maybe there's a lot of other things in our lives that are asking for our yes. Will you help me with this? Will you do this? Will you give me your time, your energy, and your focus? All good. And we might say yes to these things, but what we're gonna realize after about the fifth or sixth yes is that you're tired and that your time is stretched way too thin, that your energy is way too depleted and you may have become so scattered in all the different things that you're helping out with, you, you've lost sight of the long-term goal that you're supposed to be focused on. And you might wake up and say, oh man, my, my kids are 16. I really wanted to invest in them a little bit more and, and raise them up in godliness. Or, or you know, my marriage is, is really in a rough patch. I really wish I had taken the time to invest in it the way I intended to, or you know, I've been so busy working all this extra overtime to buy shoes and phone and, and, and computers and whatever for the kids that I forgot to invest so that one day I can retire and stop working and bless people in other ways. Maybe I've become so stretched and so tired that I just don't have the energy to, to be in the word and to cultivate prayer and to take these steps forward in my faith and relationship with God. And all of a sudden, that long-term goal that is so important that God has put on your heart that you feel this passion and this burden burden for 
we're not able to reach it or we've lost sight of it because we've said yes to so many short-term goods. And this is where the power and the magic of no comes in. No gives us the space to rest. No gives us the opportunity to be replenished and renewed and rejuvenated and to refocus on these long-term things that God has placed on our hearts, these things that are worth our yes. You see, no is not a bad word. No is not selfish. No is not something you need to feel bad about. No is essential if we want to stay focused on the long-term good that God has called us to. And sometimes we even have to say no to short-term goods in order to achieve that. But that's not the only thing Jesus is doing here either. There's another priority we see in, in his words to his disciples. He seems to be saying no as a way of prioritizing the truly important over the merely immediate. And that's a very important distinction that we need to realize because in our lives, we have to cultivate the ability to prioritize the truly important over the merely immediate. Now, let me explain what, what we mean by that. There are always going to be opportunities in your life where there are two potential things vying for your attention. And this isn't the same as like long-term stuff versus short-term stuff. These are both very present, very real, immediate things. Both of them want your yes, but one of them is oftentimes merely very immediate, they're very present, whereas the other oftentimes is actually very important. In Jesus' circumstance, he says it to his disciples like this, you will always have the poor among you, so there's one, but you will not always have me. There's the other. We have two opportunities vying for the yes of the moment. One of them is the poor. And the poor, helping the poor, that's a good thing. That's a God-honoring thing. But that's not a, an ongoingly, it's not, it's not, let me phrase this, that is not as significant in this moment as the other. Because as Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you. The poor need help today. They're gonna need help tomorrow. They're gonna need help the next day. In fact, you're always going to have that opportunity. It's good, and it is very immediate, but there's something a little more important here. It's this opportunity to lavish this devotion on Jesus. Also a good thing, but what makes it truly important is that they will not always have this opportunity. The poor you'll always have among you, but in six days, he's going to Jerusalem. In six days, he's gonna hang on a cross, and Jesus, he has all the confidence in the world that God is going to be faithful, but you could very easily build a case from scripture that Jesus wasn't entirely sure what was gonna happen after the cross. Maybe he'll be raised up to heaven and that's great. Maybe he'll be raised on earth. Maybe he won't see these people again. He's not entirely sure. And so he says to these people in this moment, you won't always have me. You won't always have the opportunity to worship me like this, to be with me like this, to lavish this love on me like this and enjoy this moment like this. You're always gonna be able to help the poor. But me, I'm not always gonna be here. And that same thing is true in our lives. There are so many truly important things that we will not always have the opportunity to partake of or to engage in. These are the truly important things. You are not always going to have the opportunity to invest in your children and your grandchildren. You're not always going to have the opportunity to cultivate godliness in them. And I'm not talking about like going on vacation and making memories and stuff. I'm talking about shaping who they are and what they stand for for the rest of their lives. 
Anybody with teenagers knows once those kids turn 16, you really don't have a lot of influence on their thoughts. There are many other voices that are speaking to them and shaping them in more profound ways than you, and there's not a lot you can do about it. You have a limited window, parents. I should say we have a limited window to truly shape and form our children for godliness. That's really important. That deserves our yes. We are not always going to have the opportunity to invest in our marriages and try to cultivate them for godliness. We might think we will, but we won't. My, my neighbor, just this past Sunday, her husband passed away very unexpectedly. He was an otherwise healthy guy, he was active, he was busy, pretty good dude, and then one day just dropped dead. Hypertension went undiagnosed and he just had a heart attack and there he goes. You're not always gonna have the opportunity. We're not always going to have the opportunity to delve into God's word and absorb it into our hearts and be shaped by it. You may think you will always be able to pick up a Bible and read it, but I promise you that about 80 to 90% of us in this room will not. I used to visit a man named George in the nursing home. George was a really great guy, but he had a lot of, a lot of health problems as he got older. One of those was his hearing. Uh, his hearing just quickly faded. He had very powerful hearing aids. Um, but even to have a conversation with him still, I would have to get about three to four inches from his, his ear and yell just to have a conversation with George. His hearing was terrible. So the idea of George listening to a sermon or listening to an audio Bible, that wasn't gonna happen. George also had pretty bad vision. He couldn't really, like he could see your face and he could know who you were, but there was no way George was gonna pick up a Bible and read it. Even large font, to have a font large enough for George to make out, you would have to have volumes and volumes and volumes of a Bible. It was just unwieldy and unpractical. He wasn't gonna be reading scripture. And even if George had the opportunity to, to learn Braille or some sort of sensory uh, reading and communication technique, he had neuropathy in his fingers. He couldn't feel anything. George was completely cut off from scripture and from God's word. At a time of his life where he was the most afraid and the most concerned and needed that hope the most, he was cut off from it largely, except for a few visitors. And I drove home from that nursing home on several occasions, terrified that someday I would end up like George. Not afraid that I would get older or that I would lose hearing or something like that, but that I would be cut off from hope and from truth and from the message of life when I needed it most in my life. And even scarier was the idea that the only amount of God's word that I might have as I progress in life is what I've managed to hide in my very poor memory. We will not always have the opportunity to engage in God's word. This is an important thing that deserves our yes. We will not always have the opportunity to pray with people in need because once that moment has passed, the moment has passed. And so has any impact we may have had in their lives for the kingdom of God. There are very very important things that we need to recognize in our lives that deserve our yes, more so even than the immediate things. I'm running late for that doctor's appointment. I really need to get going. I can't take the time to go see my neighbor and pray with her. I, I, I really, really need to get to the golf course. I promised those guys that I'd be there. I've been late every time. I really need to make sure I get there. You know, I really need to make sure that I buy those kids, those shoes, that phone, whatever, so I gotta work this extra overtime. There are good things, good things that are very immediate, but they'd have to be told no so that we can say yes to the truly, truly important things that God has called us to and put on our hearts. See, that's the power of no. It is a magical word with so much potential in our lives and we cannot be afraid to use it. It is not selfish to say no 
to immediate things so that you can focus on the important. It is not selfish to say no, even to good things, so that you can prioritize the long term, so that you run life like a marathon and not a sprint. It is not selfish for you to say no, so that you can rest and be replenished and renewed. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the word no. In fact, it is a crime not to say no from time to time. It is essential, and even Jesus used that word. And so I hope, I hope, that if you're somebody that struggles with saying no, you may say, this doesn't seem like a super spiritual point. It is, trust me. If you're somebody that struggles with saying no, I hope that you adopt the power of these magic words into your life, and that the next time somebody comes to you and asks for your yes, that you would plant both feet firmly on the ground, and that you would raise your hands to the sky and look up into the air and that you would recite the ancient incantation, no! And I promise you that if you do that, not only will they not pursue you anymore, they'll never ask for your help again because you look like a weirdo. No, but on a serious note, I really hope that we do take this this opportunity to say no this week. In fact, each of you were, were given a lay on the back of your chair. It's a fun thing because it's a vacation theme and and that's all cute. But actually, there's a purpose for this. I want you to take this lay home and I want you to put it somewhere that you're going to see every day. And I want it to be a reminder. Here's a corny word play. You're going to love this. Here's a corny word play. I want you to be reminded to lay something down this week and to say no. Maybe it's somebody that's asking for your time and you really don't have time to give. Maybe it's something really good but it's not what's best and it's not what's truly important. There's something this week that's gonna ask for your yes that needs to be told no. And I want you to say no, not because you're selfish, not because you're lazy, not because you just don't wanna do it. I want you to say no so that you can say yes to what really matters. If that means taking time to engage in God's word or invest in your kids or invest in your marriage, let it be. If that means saying no so that you can take a much needed rest and a reprieve and refocus yourself on God and what he's calling you to in life, let that be. But choose to say no so that you can say yes to the best of things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the example of Jesus. I know sometimes we we feel like we need to say yes to every good thing that comes our way, but I thank you for the permission to say no. I thank you for the opportunity to make space in our lives to rest, to refocus on who you call us to be and what you call us to do. I thank you for the opportunity to prioritize things that really are truly important. And I pray that you clarify those for us, that we would be able to recognize the people and the conversations and the actions that are necessary. Lord, we thank you that you didn't tell us no, that even at our worst, you said yes. You sent your son into this world to find us, to redeem us, to call us out of chaos. Sometimes the chaos that the world makes, sometimes chaos of our own making, but you called us out of that into life, into peace. And as we continue to walk with you and seek him, I pray that you would teach us the ways of peace and rest. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things, amen.